0: This show is brought to you by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also by go to green technology helping reduce the need for business travel. Now, welcome to the award winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Colbert Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, MSNBC, The Tom Hartman Program, The Progressive, The Young Turks, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann, with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Daily Show. <laughs>
1: And I hope the Republicans pull out all the stops, folks. Because if we don't elect stronger leaders, America may soon go the way of Rome. Once the hub of the greatest empire the world has ever known, now it's basically Detroit made out of marble. <laughs> Luckily, there is a clear way for America to pick the strongest leaders, and it's the subject of tonight's word Midterm erection. Nation. These midterms are already historic, thanks to the large number of prominent female candidates, or candidates. <laughs> and these women and their supporters have come up with a phrase that perfectly captures what America needs from its leaders.
2: Hey, politicians who are in office today, you need to man up.
3: Man up and do what you're asking other people to do. I have two words for you,
2: man up. Man up, Harry Reid. Man up, man up,
1: man up. Man up. Yeah, guys, man up! Stop acting like weak, spineless, unfit for leadership, whatever the opposite of a man is. Everyone, everyone likes to say that if women ruled the world, there would be no more war, and that all the children of the world would be fed. And it is so refreshing to know that these women don't want that either. Plus, a woman telling her male opponent to man up is just good politics. Because, folks, it works. Listen to how Delaware's Christine O'Donnell deballed her heavily favored primary opponent, Mike Castle. Mike, this is not a bake-off. Get your man pants on. Yeah, Mike. Get your man pants on. Well said and true. Because anyone who's been to a bake-off knows you don't wear pants. So. We need leaders who are ready to man up. And folks, let's be clear about what these ladies mean. There's only one part of an American man that goes up. The penis part. Size matters. I mean, these... These lady politicians are basically saying, it's time our democracy ditched the ballot box in favor of the measuring stick. And I agree. In this election, there's only one poll that matters. Only one lever we should be cranking behind that curtain. Vote for whichever candidate has a rock-hard, seam-splitting man lance, a steel-trust, load-bearing Don Quixote, the length of a champion summer squash, the girth of a Costco can of chickpeas, and an iron core so dense it throws off compasses. And failing that, we should just elect candidates with giant balls, (laughs) like these women, who have the huevos to suggest that what leadership actually requires is manning up.
3: The state of California recently passed the toughest energy legislation in the country. It's a law to reduce emissions and promote alternative energy. Three Tuesdays from now on election day, California voters will get to decide whether or not to scrap that law, to essentially get rid of it. At the California Secretary of State's website, you will find that 91% of the money that's been raised to kill the state's energy law comes from oil companies, many of which are out of state oil companies. In other words, people who make a lot of money when their emissions are not restricted are funding the effort to kill California's law to restrict their emissions and also to come up with alternative energy that competes with them. What's remarkable, uh, what's worth preserving in amber, what's worth imprinting on as a democratic norm about this is that figuring out who's paying to kill California's new energy law is a doable thing. Proposition 23 to kill that energy law may indeed pass. Those in favor of killing that law have dumped a ton of money into this effort, but Californians can at least know that it's essentially all out-of-state oil companies who are trying to kill California's law. Those oil companies can try to make themselves look like just a California housewife when they are running their TV ads, but in the end, they do have to disclose their donations. When you as a viewer see a yes on Prop 23 ad, you can go online and find out that yes on Prop 23 is not actually this nice personable California housewife, It's. Valero Energy, and Occidental Petroleum, and Marathon Energy, and Frontier Oil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's oil companies. But at least you get to know that. It is a knowable thing. And that, this year, counts as a good news story about the small d democratic nature of America's democracy. Because at least in California, politicians from Arnold Schwarzenegger to Gavin Newsom and everybody in between, people who wanna protect California's environmental laws, they are at least able to say, We're protecting California's environmental laws from an effort that is 91% funded by mostly out-of-state oil companies who are trying to gut our state's efforts to protect our own environment. At least they can say that. At least they can make that argument. At least voters can know who is on each team. That is the exception and not the rule this year.
4: I challenge Paul Rove to tell me that this money isn't coming from billionaires and millionaires, insurers, companies, oil companies, major executives who have about as much in common and concern of the people in Northeast Pennsylvania as I don't know what does.
3: Vice President Joe Biden talking there about a conservative group called American Crossroads, headed by Karl Rove and Ed Gillespie, two of the men who were running the Republican Party under George W. Bush and who apparently now still are, regardless of whose name is on the door at the RNC. American Crossroads originally set a fundraising goal of $52 million for this election cycle. They have reportedly already passed that goal. They're now on track to raise and spend $70 million on anti-Democrat campaign ads. Some of what they raise requires no disclosure whatsoever. What has been disclosed, however, is hilarious. As of the last period for which we have disclosure reports, in the part of their funds that they disclose, more than 90% of their money came from three people, three, count them three, individual billionaires. The New York Times reporting today that last week, Mr. Rove and Mr. Gillespie, quote, received a check for several million dollars from a single donor whom they declined to identify. Naturally, nor are they required to identify this person. This anonymous funding thing is the same charge that the Obama administration is levying right now against the Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber of Commerce not only does not disclose their donors, but they are known to receive foreign money. And so far, the only assurance they've offered that their foreign money doesn't end up paying for the ads they're running, is just their assertion that it doesn't. Trust us, we say that's not happening, trust us or don't last night vice president joe biden made clear that he's on the or don't side he said quote i challenge the chamber of commerce to tell us how much of the money they're investing is from foreign sources responding to that challenge the chamber answered saying quote zero as in not a single cent uh you know trust us (laughs) That got a double-barreled response from the White House. First from Vice President Biden, who shot back, I'm not taking their word for it, show me. And then from White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs.
5: If there are organizations raising tens of millions of dollars who won't tell us who their donors are, my guess is they're not telling us for a reason because they have something to
3: hide. The end result of this sustained White House campaign against the Chamber of Commerce, against this anonymous funding stuff. Uh, came in a letter from the chamber obtained by the New York Times today. Quote, the chamber will not be silenced. In fact, for the next three weeks leading up to election day, you will see us ramp up our efforts. We say we're not using foreign money to influence the elections, and if you keep saying we are, in other words, we'll influence the elections even more with money from who knows where. Trumble before us, American dogs. No word on whether the new round of ads from the Chamber of Commerce will be in Mandarin. This is one of those moments where you can watch the Beltway common wisdom calcify before your very eyes. As the president makes an issue out of this, As the Vice President makes an issue out of this. As the White House spokesman makes an issue out of this. As the Democratic Party runs ads making an issue of this. As, in my case, random senior citizens in Delaware raise this issue with me when I'm at a campaign event that doesn't address this issue at all. As Democrats really start to make an issue out of this. About this thing that is new in American elections. You can see the Beltway Common Wisdom about it forming. You can see it right now, today. You can see this common wisdom forming that actually this really isn't an issue that Democrats should be talking about. This isn't something that voters care about. This isn't a good thing for Democrats to talk about in this election. Keep hearing that today from Beltway pundits. And you know, sometimes when people are giving that advice, it's not because they think the punch being thrown against them won't hurt them. It's because they just want to stop being punched. Last night in Wisconsin, in a very hard-fought Senate race, Democratic Senator Russ Feingold ignored this rapidly calcifying, stupid, disarm the Democrats' common wisdom and went ahead and hit his Republican opponent, Ron Johnson, on this issue over and over again. Ron Johnson initially defended what he called the free speech rights of these anonymous donors running ads in support of him before he finally was forced to admit that yeah, maybe people voting in Wisconsin this year have a right to know who's trying to lacquer the election there with their money.
1: You say you don't want them? Will you call on them to stop? I have no control over that. Will you ask that, them that, to stop? That, that's part of the problem. You have no control Will over that Will you ask process. them to stop? That's their right to free speech. You want to be able to select who can have free speech and who doesn't want, to have, want to have free you speech. I want everybody to have free speech, but I want them to be able to, uh, as you just said, they ought to disclose. You haven't even called on these people to disclose. You just said you're for disclosure. You won't even call on them to disclose.
6: Ha- I'd be happy to have them disclose. Well, then why don't you ask them to do it? Disclose. Okay. That's, I,
3: I, I want disclosure. But don't forget, word on the street in Washington, Democrats don't bother with this issue. Nothing to see here, people don't care. Never mind those cheering people in the audience, happy about the Republican caving on this issue and having no way to defend his earlier position. Pay no attention.
0: If you're like most Americans, you dream of selling all your possessions and moving to a self-sufficient off-the-grid farm in South Dakota, all while maintaining your corporate job to pay for your continued satellite TV and internet subscriptions. Well, now with GoToMeeting, you can totally disconnect from the rigors of modern life while staying completely connected. Through the use of screen sharing and conference calling through the computer or by phone, you'll be able to meet, collaborate, and present, just as though you hadn't just renounced the concept of material possessions. Visit GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code PODCAST to start your one and a half full moon cycle free trial. That's GoToMeeting.com promo code PODCAST to start your free trial of more than three fortnights.
5: Now, earlier in the show, we talked about campaign finance reform. Here's my proposal for campaign finance reform. Public financing of elections. Why? Because people work for the folks who pay them. Right now, our politicians are paid by the lobbyists. So they work for them, not us. Money buys votes, it buys the ads you see on your TV sets, it buys campaign staffers, and poll tested talking points, and mailers, and the list goes on and on. These are all the things that are meant to deceive you. The reality is that people in corporations are not spending all of that money on lobbyists and politics because they have your best interests in mind. It's because they want a return on their investment. They spend that money to make more money for themselves. Some people complain that if we do public financing of elections, the taxpayer has to pay for the politicians' campaigns. Yes, that's true. But we pay for it anyway. Right now we just pay a hell of a lot more in all the favors those politicians do for their campaign contributors. I'd rather spend a few million getting a clean election than spend billions of taxpayer money so that a politician can return favors for his donors. This should not be a conservative or liberal issue. Why would conservatives want their politicians bought any more than the liberals do? We're all sick of it. Changing that system is what got so many people excited about 2008. But that's also why the Tea Party folks want to do their anti-Washington charge. We should be united on this. Listen, I want a country where we go back to having honest debates about pro-life or pro-choice, or all other issues of principle. Right now, you can tell who's going to win on any given issue, not by the principles involved or even the public polling. You can tell by where the money is. For example, conservatives, I hate to break to you, but you're gonna lose on gay marriage. Not because most of the country isn't with you, that's kind of a split issue. You're gonna lose because there's slightly more money on the gay rights side. That's not how we should settle important issues. But the much larger problems are things like national defense, where we buy weapon systems not based on whether we need them or can afford them, but based on which politicians got greased and where the factories located. We waste trillions of dollars like this. And I haven't even gotten to the most powerful lobby, the bank banks. They sucked so much money out of the system that we had one of the largest economic crashes of all time. And they're not even done yet. Let me ask you this final question you think all these corporations and rich folks are spending money on politics because it's not good for business no obviously they think it's a great investment for them nothing brings you better return than buying a United States politician so do you think it might also be a good investment for us to keep our politicians clean and worrying for us instead of their donors I think it'd be the best investment we ever made
6: Okay, so we may have this little moment in time that actually could work out kind of cool. I frankly doubt that the conservatives will go along with this. I mean, this is one of those things that requires good faith. <laughs> oh man. But I you know, I guess a little bit of Obama has rubbed off on me. I am hopeful that maybe they'll maybe they'll consider this. And and actually when you consider the Tea Party movement, you know, the the Tea Party the grassroots people in the tea party obviously not dick armey he loves the fact that his corporation freedom works is a person under the uh, according to the supreme court it's it's what's allowing him to spend millions and millions of dollars in campaign ads you know the chamber of commerce loves this they they all these guys you know the karl rove you know raising over 50 million bucks based on the idea that a corporation that he created is a person in the united states and therefore has the First Amendment free speech right to spend money on campaigns and speak its political mind. Even though it doesn't breathe, it doesn't eat, it doesn't excrete, it can't reproduce. It doesn't worry about fresh air. It doesn't worry about clean water. It's a corporation. Come on. But according to Sam Alito and John Roberts and Antonin Scalia, and and Clarence Thomas, and Justice Kennedy, that corporation that Carl Rove created, American Crossings GPS, that corporation is a person. As I said, this has its this had its genesis in 1886, a bribed the 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 judge of the Ninth Circuit Court in California. This was the top appeals court. It was a one man court at that time in eighteen eighty six, and it was Stephen J. Field was his name. And he had been bribed by the railroads. You can find the correspondence a block from my house in the National Archives here in Washington, D.C. I have seen it. Where the railroad where where I, I it was a Jay Gould or Huntington, it was one of the railroad barons, was writing to Stephen Field saying, basically, if you can get us recognized as persons we will sponsor you for the presidency of the United States in the election of 1888 or 1892. And so Stephen Field, in that court, in the Ninth Circuit Court in California, in a case called Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, ruled that the railroad was a person. Now, of course, the county immediately said, no way, we're going to fight this. A guy named Delphin Delmas, who was the lawyer for the county, the guy who on a pro bono case, he didn't take a penny for it, fought to protect the redwoods before the before the before the, the courts in California and won, by the way, the, the Delphin Dalmus is the only reason there's still a standing redwood tree in California. He took on this case on behalf of Santa Clara County and took it to the Supreme Court and said, no, corporations are not people. In fact, he laid it right out, right before the court. He said, What? You want them to get married? You think they can have kids? And in fact, the court did not, the court decided, we're not going to rule on whether they're people or not because, you know, under the California Constitution, it sure looks to us like the Santa Clara or the uh, Southern Pacific Railroad needs to pay their taxes. The railroad lost. So, how is it? that the Supreme Court in January of this year said corporations are people and they have First Amendment rights of free speech and they said that it was the decision in 1886 that proved that, that gave them the basis for that. If you actually read that 1886 Supreme Court ruling you will see that there is no mention in that ruling whatsoever of corporations being people. In fact, they go so far as to say a constitutional issue, which is this: whether other cor- corporations are people, was an argument was made by the railroad, and we decided not to rule on it. I'm paraphrasing. We decided not to rule on it because we could find the solution in California, in the California Constitution, in California law. So how come everybody thinks corporations are people? How come the Supreme Court thought corporations are people? It turns out that the guy who was the the clerk of the court, the only guy who stayed in Washington DC 12 months out of the year. The other the other nine just the the nine justices other than the first district, you know, the the DC justice. The other guys did what's called riding the circuit. I mean, they, you know, Stephen Field went out to California, spent 9 months out in California, came back to DC for 3 months to be on the Supreme Court for the term of the court so the one guy who was here permanently and actually had a higher paycheck the Supreme Court justices in 1886 were paid $10,000 a piece a year Uh, John Chandler Bancroft Davis the clerk of the court was paid $10,500 he actually had higher social status in DC than the justices did it was a more highly paid job and he was considered you know in the in the social milieu he was a big shot he was a big deal his father was the governor of Massachusetts. He came from a very wealthy family, and he had been one of the founders of the Newburgh and New York Railroad. He was in tight with the railroad barons, the guys who were bribing Stephen Field, and two other members of the Supreme Court. So the railroad had three members of the Supreme Court that they had that they were bribing. And they had the clerk who was their friend. He was one of them. So while the court ruled against the railroad in eighteen eighty six, history tells us a different story. Because in the commentary on that ruling, something called the head note, the clerk of the court wrote that the Chief Justice had said, everybody understands that corporations are persons. That's not in dispute. Now whether he said that or not is 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 irrelevant. It's not part of the decision. It, it it and it contradicts the ruling. So here we have a coup d'etat by the Supreme Court in the United States about the Fourteenth Amendment. So what I'm saying is, okay, you want to take out of the Fourteenth Amendment that if you're born here, you're a citizen? Fine with me. If you do that at the same time, insert the word natural before the word person and undo hundred and twenty years of corporate power in this country.
1: President Obama is on the ropes. People have counted him out, but they have forgotten this guy is an incredible campaigner. And yesterday he announced a bold initiative that is sure to win back the goodwill of young voters.
7: I think we should have longer school years.
1: More school! Listen, Barry, you may be Command Nerd-in-Chief, But that doesn't mean the rest of us have to suffer. (laughs) Summer's the best. Next year we're supposed to go up to Cooper Lake with Billy and Brandon and the guys. (laughs) Mr. Gauthier bought jet skis and we're going to race. I hate you. (laughs) This has got to be Obama's worst legislative initiative since the You Forgot to Give Us Homework Act of 2009. (laughs) Well, thankfully, Obama's days are numbered because last week the Republicans launched their historic pledge to America which has something to please everyone. Jimmy, pop me a Boehner.
7: If Republicans win the majority in November, it will not be business as usual. It will not be business as usual. It will not be business as usual.
1: Yes, everything's going to be
7: different. We are not gonna be any different than what we've been.
1: Except anything. So, you can see. Absolutely, give it up for John Boehner. Note to self, buy pumpkin. Okay. So you can see... You can see why the Republican base is so pumped. In fact, on the generic ballot of Republican versus Democrat, polls show that Republicans have a four-point advantage. They also have a ten-point advantage on the super-generic ballot, which removes parties altogether and asks people just to grunt at either red or blue. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Democrats aren't feeling quite as perky, Jim.
2: The enthusiasm gap we're seeing in this election,
1: that likely voters are now more likely to vote Republican. If you look at the enthusiasm gap, it's a 20-point advantage for the Republicans. The Democrats have got to be worried that they've got apathy on their side. Democrats are a little disaffected. Yes, Democrats are feeling disaffected, which is different than most elections when they are stoked with cautious skepticism. In fact, democratic self-loathing has gotten so bad, they've changed their symbol from the silhouette of a donkey to Eeyore eating a whole chocolate cheesecake. Even long-time prominent Obama supporters are mumbling their apathy, like Shepard Ferry who designed the famous Obama Hope poster, the most successful political poster since the one that got Farrah Fawcett's nipples elected governor of California. (laughs) I can never remember which one is lieutenant governor. (laughs) Now, if Obama's campaign were going on today, Ferry says he couldn't design the same Hope poster because the spirit of the Obama campaign hasn't carried over to the Obama presidency. Today, the poster would look like this. The Democrats... The Democrats' real mistake, I think, was motivating voters with hope instead of fear. You see, hope can be strangled in its cradle, but fear is harder to kill. Because even if it is killed, who killed it? There's a murderer on the loose! So, Democrats, Democrats, you... You are facing a tough choice. You could stand up and fight, but that sounds hard. <laughs> Wouldn't it be easier just to lay down and let a wave of conservative enthusiasm bury you alive? <laughs> After all, it's comfortable down there. And uh, oh. and if you get up and vote, you could just be disappointed again. So, don't you think getting worked up is just not worth it? I mean, it's just the control of Congress. I mean, sometimes being out of power is really a breath of fresh air. Joining me now to explain what my advice might mean for the Democrats, please welcome Democratic strategist Paul Begala. Second. I just want to pat that down a little bit. Okay. Now, Paul. Okay. Why, why do you think the Democrats are so apathetic right now? What, what, well, what can we do to fire them up so they, they're merely indifferent? They got, <laughs>
8: they've got to be fired They need to rise up out of that grave, mm-hmm. grab the shovel, mm-hmm. smack John Boehner upside his orange head. How about that?
1: Paul, that is a threat of violence, and I believe I could have you arrested now. (laughs) No doubt. So why are the Democrats just taking this, you know, lying down? Yeah,
8: well, Sun Tzu in The Art of War said, to kill the enemy, we must rouse our troops to anger. And right now, the Democrats uh, are not being roused to anger. They're being roused to apathy, or they're being told they're not working hard enough. Uh, and I love this president. Can we, I love blame, the vice can president, we blame Obama? They, I think they've been too hard on their own people. And they ought to, I have this odd idea in politics that you ought to attack the enemy instead of your friends. Could Obama
1: just uh, turn against himself? Because everybody <laughs> seems to be doing that. Even Democrats are running away from Barack Obama and the things that Barack Obama achieved.
8: They are. And because
1: the Republicans, remember, they're saying Obama's done too much. And the Democrats are saying, Obama hasn't done enough. Right. And I think the debate needs to stop for the Democrats being
8: only about Obama and his great ideas, which I support, draw contrast with their ideas. But what are those great ideas? Because I don't know what President Obama's? I don't know what Well, all he did save are. the economy, extended health care. Everybody wants to save
1: the economy. That's not a great idea. He's,
8: That's he's not like, I love cash. It's not a
1: business plan. <laughs> I think he's doing great.
8: I think Democrats need a Henny Youngman strategy. Every time he asked Henny Take Youngman, Take my wife, please. No, the other joke. <laughs> that's, that's not. That's <laughs> no, every time somebody asked Henny Youngman, How's your wife? he said, Compared to what? right How's Obama compared to what this crowd wants to ship jobs overseas today the republicans voted to protect corporations that ship jobs overseas and to give them a tax break for doing it well, if, if we can't, can't what, run against that what can we run you're against. You're
1: talking about the Tea Partiers who, who, who are, right. are, are, are may, might be the more extreme version of the Republican Party right now why don't the Democrats have one of those why in the next uh, 30 days I hope they don't but why in the next 30 days can't they motivate people to come out and chant in the streets. I, I
8: think they can and they should. I'm looking forward to uh, your rally, or John. Right, no, so you, will, John's you, rally will you? Will you? Will
1: you? If invited, will you come to the the, the march to keep fear alive?
8: Oh, gladly. I'd be honored to. Are you kidding? I would love to.
1: I'll Uh, think about inviting you. Because
8: there's a lot... Well, here's what we need to fear. I don't invite
1: anybody until they tell me they're coming first. (laughs) Good point. You say Obama needs a visible enemy to attack. Right. Wouldn't it be better for the Democrats if they lost Congress so Obama had a Republican Congress to attack for 2012. Yeah, we tried that in the Clinton White House when you I was did. You did, you lost in 94 yeah. big, and then Clinton, a year later, uh, uh, Gingrich shut down Congress. Clinton said, you go right ahead. And then, <laughs> and after that, everybody but loved then, Clinton. And then they impeached him for that, nothing. They did, I mean, it was, then they
8: impeached him for nothing, which is, I think, what these guys would like to do as well with President Obama. I, I don't
1: think they're going to get Obama on that, because I think Lewinsky's too old to be an intern. <laughs> Well, okay. Paul, thank you so much. Democratic strategist, Paul Begu-
0: A year, a little discount for you. Please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
3: The next hour starts as many shows do these late days. It starts with me getting really excited about the election theme music.
6: The following program is part of the intensive coverage of election year 64 by NBC News. Results in yesterday's general election are still trickling in. The latest figures show President Johnson nearly 41 and three-quarter million, Senator Goldwater nearly 26 and one-quarter million. Regardless of where the votes were cast, they underscore that this year, Americans were remarkably uniform in their judgments.
3: Actually, the 1964 election results from NBC News. Republican Barry Goldwater got clobbered in that election by Lyndon Johnson. The 1964 presidential election was total destruction. It was the most lopsided loss at that point in a generation. The 1964 presidential election, an unqualified disaster for the Republican party. Well, but maybe there is one qualification. Look at the map of results from election night, 1964. Look at that map. That map of results that night is not a a typical win-loss map. It's sort of funny, right? I mean, overall, Barry Goldwater got completely destroyed, except that he won his home state of Arizona. Okay, that's fairly normal for a candidate to carry their home state. Where else did he win? He also won the Deep South, solidly, as a block. That's all he won outside his home state. Look at that. It was a total electoral drubbing for the Republicans, but one that had sort of a silver lining. I mean, Republicans never won the Deep South back then. Look at the previous elections from around that time. 1960, John Kennedy carried many of those same Southern states for the Democrats. In 1956, the South was just about the only place that voted Democratic. 1952, same thing. Look at that, look at that. That was the typical pattern for that time in American history. The Republican Party in that election, right? 1952, winning everywhere else, but not the South because the South was solidly Democratic. But 1964 comes along. Barry Goldwater comes along, he can't win anywhere else, but he wins the South, convincingly. What explained that? How did Barry Goldwater flip the South in 1964? What else was going on in 1964? Oh, the other big thing happening that year in politics, the signing of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Barry Goldwater was against the 1964 Civil Rights Act.
8: I am compelled
6: to urge uh, Negroes and all people of good world to vote against him.
3: His election would be a tragedy and certainly suicidal
7: almost for the nation and the world.
3: Regardless of how conservative hero Barry Goldwater's position on civil rights affected his candidacy all across the country, it very clearly branded him in the South in a very specific way. Barry Goldwater won the South. It is the only place that he won. And that fact changed Republican politics. That Southern miracle of anti-civil rights Barry Goldwater got noticed. Four years later, Republican Richard Nixon won the presidency with a strong Republican showing in the South and here's how his chief political analyst in that election in 1968 explained the southern strategy to the New York Times quote from now on the Republicans are never going to get more than 10 to 20 percent of the Negro vote and they don't need any more than that But Republicans would be short-sighted if they weakened enforcement of the Voting Rights Act the more Negroes who register as Democrats in the South the sooner the Negrophobe whites will quit the Democrats and become Republicans that's where the votes are that's where the votes are with the, with the whites. Again, this, th- that was not some, some liberal complaining back then, this is what Republicans were doing. This was, this was Republicans in their own words. Republicans at the time, in their own words, explaining what they were doing. It was an overt, debated, deliberate strategy. Let us write off the black vote, but let us lock up every single white vote. Let us make sure that if we get every single white vote, we don't go out of our way to ensure that there's a lot of black people voting. Because if we can do those two things, if we can make sure that there aren't too many black people voting, and every white person voting is voting for us, then we win. That's where the votes are. This is a strategy about which Republicans, of course, now say they feel bad. Back in 2005, former Republican Party chairman Ken Millman apologized to the NAACP for his party's use of the Southern strategy in the 1960s and the 1970s. The current RNC chairman, Michael Steele, admitted earlier this year that the Republican Party employed the Southern strategy for more than 40 years. Mr. Steele was not bragging on that when he said it. Within the last few years, we've also seen former Republican Senator Trent Lott lose his job as Senate Majority Leader and essentially get drummed out of public life after he made pro-segregationist comments about Strom Thurmond. We saw Virginia Republican Governor George Allen careened violently out of potential presidential contention after his bizarre macaca comments on race. But this year, this year, have you noticed there haven't really been any macaca moments? I mean, correction, actually, there have been a ton of macaco moments. There's been a ton of moments, ton of instances of people saying and doing shocking things about race. But the effect has not been the same. There has not been the ensuing embarrassment you might expect. Nobody's getting in trouble for it.
1: When you look at, let's say, the first one, and I
6: have a hard time pronouncing her name, Sarah, but um the first uh, Supreme Court of justice, justice that Obama named was what? starts with an S,
4: Sar... God, I can't remember her name. Sarah Minor... Sarah Minorgan or something. Sarah Morgan? Sarah name. Morgan? No, it's not Sarah Morgan. Son, Son of How do you pronounce it? Son of Okay, let's just take her for example.
3: John Racey, Republican Senate candidate in West Virginia, letting everybody know that he has no intention of remembering or correctly pronouncing any of them Spanish-sounding names. Also Asian names, no matter how easy they are to pronounce. Here's John Racy referring to President Obama's Energy Secretary, Dr. Stephen Chu.
1: He just brought to Charleston yesterday, Dr. Cho. or Dr. Chow. Or Dr.
4: Chow Ming. I don't know what his name is.
3: (laughs) Dr. Chow Ming. Get it? Get it? Because he's... You know, that could have been John Racy's macaca moment. Either of those could have been John Racy's macaca moment. But apparently not this year. Apparently that isn't happening this year. Then in Nevada, there's Sharon Engel, who ran this ad showing these scary, scary brown people taking away college education uh, from a very, very all-white crowd of college student victims. Uh, when she was confronted about this by a Hispanic organization at a Nevada high school, um, this is... Uh, you see, there's the white college student victims. Uh, here's what happened when she was confronted about it. Why is it up in all
2: your commercials? What do you see when, when I quote um, I think that you're misinterpreting those um, commercials. I'm not sure that those are Latinos in that commercial. What it is is a fence and there are people coming across that fence. What we know is that our northern border is where the terror is. Came through. I don't know that all of you are Latino. Some of you look a little more Asian to me. I don't know that. What we know about what we know about ourselves is that we are a melting pot in this country. My my grandchildren are um, evidence of that. I'm evidence of that. I've been called the first Asian. Uh, legislator
3: in our Nevada state assembly Sharon Engel not Asian wants us to know she's been called Asian though there she was speaking to a group of Hispanic high school students about her racist campaign ad Sharon Engel told the students that even though it was a Hispanic student group they looked a little Asian to her this could have been Sharon Engel's macaca moment but apparently that's not happening this year then there's Carl Paladino, Republican candidate for Governor in New York. Mr. Paladino exposed earlier this year for emailing out an African tribal dance video to all of his friends under the heading "Obama Inauguration Rehearsal." Uh, Or there's uh, this one, his email, that's President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama dressed as a pimp and prostitute. A photoshopped image that Mr. Palladino emailed out under the heading White House Ball. Either one of those things could have been Carl Palladino's macaca moment, but apparently that's not happening this year. Take also Tom Tancredo in the running for governor in Colorado. Tom Tancredo earlier this year lamented to a Tea Party audience that this country has done away with literacy tests as a requirement to vote
9: mostly
5: because I think uh, we do not have a civics literacy test
4: before people can vote in this country people
5: people who could not even spell the word vote or say it in English put a committed socialist ideologue in the White House. Name is Barack Hussein Obama.
3: Tom Tancredo recommending bringing back something we did used to have in this country, literacy tests for voting. Usually when you read about them, they are described in print as Jim Crow era literacy tests for voting because they were used in the South most prominently to keep the voting rolls white only. Suggesting a return of Jim Crow-era literacy tests for voting could have been Tom Tancredo's macaca moment. But I guess that's not happening this year. Some of the latest polling out of Colorado actually shows Tom Tancredo within five points of the Democrat in the governor's race there right now. Suggesting a return to literacy tests wasn't going to be a macaca moment for Tom Tancredo in this year. It wasn't going to happen in this year, when it went not with, with candidates on the ballot like Rand Paul of Kentucky.
9: Would you have voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1964?
8: I like
6: the Civil Rights Act in the sense that it ended discrimination in all public um, uh, domains, and I'm all in favor of that. But. <laughs> you had to ask me the but. Um, I don't like the idea of telling private business owners. I abhor racism. I think it's a bad business decision to ever exclude anybody from your restaurant.
3: But at the same time, I do believe in private ownership. Rand Paul arguing against the 1964 Civil Rights Act, making almost the exact same arguments that Barry Goldwater made against the 1964 Civil Rights Act, back in 1964.
4: In my home state, we have very few public places that remain segregated by pointing out to business people that it is morally wrong to practice discrimination, and it's also economically bad. This type of approach, while I know it's time-consuming,
3: it is having its effect, will have its effect, and I think it will achieve what we want. Eventually, the South will desegregate itself beyond all these 1964 moments uh, from top-of-the-ticket Republicans in this election year. There's also been a lot of little-known Republicans having 1964 moments as well. Uh, it's the obscure Republican running for Congress in Oregon it was a guest on this show. He has decided to keep in print as part of his homeschooling curriculum a racist 19th century book about how childlike and unintelligent the Negro is. Uh, there's a gentleman named Jim Russell, a Republican House candidate in New York State who is an overt white supremacist.
6: It's not all inevitable that the whites will become a minority in their own country. And I would like to ask Jared Taylor if he thinks that as more and more white Americans realize that they're becoming outnumbered, whether there will be a rise in white
1: activism. What are you afraid of? I what? mean, outnumbered? You, I mean, what is this, a game of, of, of sort of choose-up sides? Go every ahead, group Jared in America, Tom,
6: Every group in America stands for its own. It's about time that we did too.
3: It's about time that we did too. Uh, That guy's running for something this year. He's running for Congress on the Republican ticket in New York State. There's also Bob McDonald, the Republican governor of Virginia, putting out the proclamation on Confederate History Month that makes no mention of the fact that slavery had something to do with the Confederate cause. It's that local Republican Party chairman in Virginia who this week got busted for sending out a racist joke about how his dog should be eligible for welfare because his dog is, and I quote, black... Unemployed, lazy, can't speak English, and has no clue who his daddy is. We wanted to do a story tonight. In the news meeting today, what we pitched was, what I pitched was a a story tonight about whether there's anybody calling foul when candidates say bigoted things. Whether anyone is saying whoa when politics takes a turn toward not really politics at all. And I thought we would have a couple of examples that we would investigate. We ended up shooting into the double digits of examples and ultimately just stopped taking down new ones in the interest of time. This isn't a here and there one off accidental thing happening in the elections this year. There is a ton of this stuff. The Barry Goldwater experience in 1964, writ large, is still the great modern story of Republicans blowing an election, Republicans losing. Writ large, that's the Barry Goldwater 1964 story. Writ small though, it is a story of Republicans learning how to lock up the white vote. Republicans learning that strategically, mathematically, sometimes it makes sense to turn every minority voter against you and have that be the cost you pay to lock up all the white votes. As Richard Nixon's chief political analyst explained back in 1970, the more Negroes who register as Democrats in the South, the sooner the Negrophobe whites will quit the Democrats and become Republicans, and that's where the votes are. That's where the votes are. Does this work in 2010? Does this work in more than just the South? Does this work in what's expected to be a low turnout general election? The Southern strategy now means floating the Dr. Chow Main stuff. It means floating the Anti-Civil Rights Act arguments. It means floating the racist jokes, bearing the criticism for it, but locking up the white vote in compensation. Of course, the other side of it is that you have to hope that not too much of the minority vote and the pro-civil rights white vote turns out against you.
9: I have to admit it, I'm envious of Sarah Palin and the Tea Partiers. They've done what many progressives have said we should have been doing long ago. They've captured one of the two main political parties in this country. And they've done so by being outspoken and aggressive. Now, I don't share their politics, not one bit, but I grudgingly respect their tactics. Where they saw Republicans who were too wishy-washy or too compromised, they went after them and took them down and ran the most avowedly ideological candidates they could find. They didn't worry about offending the party establishment. They went around the establishment, and now they're flexing their muscle and all but daring that establishment to stand in their way. As Sarah Palin just said, some in the GOP, it's their last shot, it's their last chance. And she warned the establishment that if they don't surrender, she can take the grassroots with her and start a third party. Now, no major figure within the Democratic Party has had the guts to do this. And with the exception of outsider Ralph Nader, for too many years, most progressives have played nice and played long. Now, Palin is playing us for fools.
5: uh but here's the the most important number in my opinion uh, this was just at the beginning of this year in february uh before the primary season began democrats believe it or not had a 49 to 37% advantage so when asked generically democrats or republicans who do you want to control congress democrats had a 12 point advantage today what are we about 6 months later GOP now enjoys a 55 to 39 advantage. So, if I'm doing the math right, that's a 16 point uh, lead. Democrats go from a 12 point lead to a 16 point deficit. That's a 28 point swing in six months. That is very, very bad news. And I think a lot of that is uh, the American people. Yeah, first of all, of course, a lot of it is the demagoguery, et cetera, and Fox News driving a lot of this covered a million times and that is true but also part of it is the American people being somewhat reasonable and what do I mean by that they wanted to give Obama a chance they know Bush crashed the economy when you still today when you ask people in a poll who crashed the economy they say George Bush overwhelmingly right but they want to give Obama a little bit of a chance to you know to, to to fix it and they did and now we're coming up to an election and it's been nearly two years and they look around they go is it fixed is it fixed nope all right, I guess I'll go the other way. That's politics 101. And to us it drives us crazy because we know if they go the other way they're going to go off the cliff, right? Those are the guys that in the famous analogy uh, Obama uses, I think effectively and accurately, uh the ones who drove the ditch into the car in the first place. No, the ditch into the car. It's my usual dyslexia. The car into the ditch in the first place, right? So why would you do that? Now here's a perfect example. Mitch McConnell, the head of the Republicans in the Senate, has a proposal. Ha, huh, finally. We have a proposal right it's disastrous he says we should not only continue all the Bush tax cuts permanently on the income tax cut but that we should drastically cut the estate tax as well so cutting the estate tax would cost us uh, ninety one billion dollars over the next ten years and That would go not to the richest 2% of the country. It would go to the richest 0.25% of the country. So there goes there's another $91 billion hole in the budget. When you take all of McConnell's tax cuts, you know how much they equal? According to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, $3.9 trillion just over the next decade. Now, how the hell are you going to find $3.9 trillion? To pay for all those tax cuts. You're not. He's just saying, oh, who can't deficit? We don't give a flying F about the deficit. We never have, we've always been lying about it. No, we're just going to put a $4 trillion hole in the deficit. (laughs) Okay, so now when they ask them, well, how are you going to pay for any of this? First of all, of course, the standard answer we showed you about, what, 12 clips, 24 clips, where they say, oh, no, no, you don't have to pay for tax cuts. You see, that's special economic math. If you give tax cuts to the rich, you don't have to pay for it. Somehow, the budget magically fixes itself. No, it doesn't. But who cares? We just borrow. Oh, and if we run out of money later, we'll just cut your Social Security. And they will say, "Oh, the money's gone. Money's gone. What do you mean, money's gone?" Right? And but he does have one specific proposal, and it involves um, freezing all spending. Uh, and are you shocked? Uh, and that that would save us over the next decade three hundred billion dollars. Oh that's great. That's great. That's about what 7 or 8% of the size of the hole that he's going to create. So he creates a 4 trillion dollar hole and plugs it with 300 billion dollars by freezing all spending. Of course, not defense spending. Those guys still have to get rich. So look, I'm telling you, man. In fact, not only am I telling you, but you should Thank you for uh, anything. Damn it. No, you should.
7: Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell Randy Gonzalez,
5: (laughs) I'm coming. No, I'm not coming. They're coming. Okay. Seriously, tell Randy Gonzalez, if you're going to go vote for the Republicans as a protest vote of the Democrats, I know why you're doing it. But don't do it, man. As Ice Cube once presciently said, check yourself before you wreck yourself. These guys, are, if you thought the economy was bad now, if you thought the rich were well off but the rest of us were screwed now, wait till you put the Republicans in the majority. Disaster on top of disaster. One last note on it 300 of the top economists in the country came out today and said, please don't try to balance the budget now you have to do stimulus spending you have to create jobs if you create jobs those people then have money to pay taxes it balances the budget better it accomplishes both goals get people back to work the one mistake roosevelt made in in the depression was he got convinced by the right wingers to try to balance the budget now you know me if you watch this show i i'm a budget hawk i want to balance the budget but these guys are saying not now don't do it and Instead, if of course the Republicans come in, they're not going to balance the budget either. They're going to make it worse, but they are going to stop spending and they're going to stop all programs that would hire new people. No new jobs, no new spending, nothing to stimulate the economy, just more tax cuts for the rich. If you vote Republican, either you're rich or you're mental.
10: There's a battle ahead. Many battles. But you never reach the, end of the road while you're traveling
0: with me. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
9: Let me tell you that is something that happened in Germany when the Jews were walking into the furnaces and they walked in there and didn't even try to stop or fight their way. They walked in because they did not believe that this was happening. They didn't believe that the, uh, that humanity could be so evil, so downright ugly. And they just walked into the furnaces believing that the people would do right I'm submitting to you tonight that that's where America is right now. We're believing that they will do right. They will not do right.
7: Adrian said it best. They are our enemies, and we must resist them.
3: So, hey, that guy's
7: running for Congress.
3: That's Stephen Broden, Republican nominee for Congress from the great state of Texas, 30th District. That was not a super-secret exclusive tape of the Republican nominee, Mr. Broden, saying America is like Nazi Germany being marched into the ovens right now. Uh, That was at a Tea Party rally in Fort Worth last year. We got that off the YouTube. That is on the record, on the permanent Internet record. Despite that, the National Republican Party is so behind this guy's candidacy that Chairman Michael Steele drove his giant red Fire Nancy Pelosi bus all the way to Mr. Broden's district to campaign with him.
5: Whether you're talking about a, Haley, a Nikki Haley in, in South Carolina, a Tim Scott, uh, Pastor Broden here, uh, there is a, a huge um, opportunity for us to, to show uh, the other side uh, of who we are and what we believe.
3: Now, thanks to WFAA in Dallas, we know a little bit more about that uh, who we are and what we believe thing.
9: Roden said in June
7: 2009, there is a solution. We have a constitutional remedy here. And the framer says, if that don't work... Revolution. Roden says revolution first means at the ballot box,
9: but a violent overthrow is an option. Our nation was founded on violence. In 2010, you would urge that as an option, though? The option is on the table. I
8: don't think that we should ever remove anything from the table as it relates to our liberties and our freedoms.
3: To be clear, the thing he is saying that is on the table that will not be removed from the table is the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. Not a metaphor. That's what he means. We've been talking a lot about extremism in politics, the connection between extreme politics and just extremism. Extreme politics or being extremely excited about politics is not just something that we tolerate in America. It is something we uh, and the royal we, meaning me, actually celebrate. It, It is one of the great things about having the freedom to fight it out amongst ourselves, fighting it out. In order to comfortably exercise that freedom to fight it out, though, it has to be fairly clear that we're not literally fighting violently, that there isn't somebody with a gun to anybody else's head. There needs to be an assumption that everybody at the table fighting about stuff is actually there to talk. We occasionally have this discussion in American politics about people using extreme language. I would say that when Stephen Broden claimed that the U.S. is just like Nazi Germany and we're all being marched off to the ovens, I would say that he was using a very unfortunate simile. People use over-the-top similes and metaphors and analogies all the time. It is something different, though, to soberly and deliberately threaten violence as a way to achieve your political goals.
4: Our nation
8: was founded on violence. In 2010, you would urge that as an option, though? The option is on the
4: table.
3: Stephen Broden is a candidate who most people in the United States have not heard of before. But he is a major party candidate for Congress. And the National Republican Party has fully endorsed him. And the Republican Party chairman did an event with him. It should be noted that the party's highest profile Senate candidate has also made substantively this same threat over and over and over again.
2: You know, our founding fathers, they put that Second Amendment in there uh, for a good reason. And that was for the people. Thomas Jefferson said it's good for a country to have a revolution every 20 years. I hope that's not where we're going. But, you know, if this, this Congress keeps going the way it is, people are really looking toward those Second Amendment remedies. They're saying, my goodness, what can we do to turn this country around?
3: We can do a lot of things to turn this country around. That's what this whole thing is about. That's what we're supposed to be arguing about. That's what the election is about. That's what the whole election process is about. That is what our freedom to speak, peaceably assemble, and petition the government for redress of grievances is all about. But threatening that you'll violently overthrow the government or that conservatives should be expected to try that if they don't get what they want from the ballot box is not politics. It is against politics. It seeks to overrule politics by force. This has not turned out to be a typical election year.
7: Are willing to let these people run this country? This is the America you want? This is the America you are willing to permit? These are the kinds of cranks, menaces, mercenaries and authoritarians you will turn this country over to? If you sit there next Tuesday and let this happen, whose fault will that be? Not really theirs. They are taught that freedom is to be seized and rationed. They can sleep at night, having advanced themselves, and their puppeteers, and to hell with everybody else. They see the greatness of America not in its people, but its corporations. They see the success of America not in hard work, but in business swindles. They see the worthiness of America not in its quality of life, but in its quality of investing. They see the future of America not in progress, but in revolution to establish a kind of theocracy for white males, with dissent caged and individuality suppressed. They see America not for what is nor what it can be. They see delusions, specters, fantasies. They see communists under every bed and a gun in every hand. They see tax breaks for the rich and delayed retirement for everyone else. They fight the redistribution of wealth, not because they oppose redistribution, but because their sole purpose is to protect wealth and keep it where they think it belongs, in the bank accounts of the wealthy. They want to make the world safe for Bernie Madoff. But you know better, if you sit there next Tuesday, if you sit there tomorrow and the rest of this week and you let this cataclysm unfold, you have enabled this. It is one thing to be attacked by those who would destroy America from without. It is a worse thing to be attacked by those who would destroy America from within. But it is the worst thing to sit back and let it happen, to not find the time and the means to convince just one other sane voter to put aside the disappointment of the last two years and look to the future and vote. Because the disappointment of the last two years, those will be the good old days in a Tea Party America. This is the week in which the three-card Monty dealers hope to take over the government. The candidates who want their own way, who will say anything to make palatable their real identities as agents of regression, repression and corporate sovereignty. They are here, they have energized the self-serving and the greedy and the proudly ill-informed And if no other fact convinces you of your obligation to vote and canvass and phone and even drag to the polls the most disheartened moderate or Democrat or liberal or abandoned Republican or political neutral to vote for the most tepid of the non-insane candidates, if no other detail hands you that spark of argument with which to invigorate the apathetic, you need only commit to memory the words of Stephen Broden and Sharon Angle. She can run from reporters, but she cannot run from this quote from January and all the horror and insurrection it implies. Thomas Jefferson said it's good for a country to have a revolution every 20 years. I hope that's not where we're going, but you know, if Congress keeps going the way it is, and people are really looking towards those Second Amendment remedies, Sharon Angle too subtle for you? Second Amendment remedies? Guns instead of elections? Too implicit? Fortunately to our rescue. To the speeding of the falling of the scales from our eyes comes the Tea Party and Republican nominee for the 30th Congressional District of Texas, Pastor Stephen Broden. Our nation was founded on violence, he said, on tape. Was armed insurrection, revolution, an option in 2010? The option is on the table. I don't think that we should ever remove anything from the table. However, it is not the first option. Thank you. The attempt to overthrow the government of the United States by violence is not the Tea Party's first option. Next Tuesday is the first option. The words are those of Nedrick Young and Harold Jacob Smith from the screenplay from the movie Inherit the Wind. As the attorney for the man on trial for teaching evolution, Spencer Tracy cuts to the gist. Fanaticism and ignorance is forever busy and needs feeding, and soon, Your Honor, with banners flying and with drums beating, we'll be marching backward, backward, through the glorious ages of that 16th century, when bigots burned the man who dared bring them enlightenment and intelligence to the human mind. The angered judge replies, I hope counsel does not mean to imply that this court is bigoted. The attorney mutters, well, your honor has the right to hope. The judge warns, I have the right to do more than that. The attorney explodes. You have the power to do more than that. And you have the power to do more than that.
10: this valentina from miami florida what the fuck is up with this republicans beating on democrats protesting outside their offices why are people getting beat up with the police all you see on tv now is democrats getting beat proverbially and otherwise just because they're speaking up against the people that hold high positions, which shouldn't they do, don't, you know, they pay the salaries with their hard earned money paying fucking high taxes, one would think that would be the process, you know, you pay for something, you call them up on their shit, but no, they're getting beat up, and we're letting them. As Democrats and as independents, as liberals, as open-minded individuals, we need to stand up and call them on their shit and say, what the fuck is wrong with y'all? Do something, people. Don't just sit and take it. Protest. Rally. Speak the fuck up. Otherwise, um, everything is happy and dandy in Florida, apparently. I hope you're well. Keep up the awesome show. I love you. Bye. Hey, this is Rachel Ann from Reno, Nevada, and I just wanted to thank you so much for producing such a great podcast. Um, I'm only 16, so it's really hard to talk about politics with my friends, so because none of them are informed. And this is just a really great way to satisfy my need for that stuff. And this past week's, this last episode about the drug war was great. I literally was cheering during it, and. And thank you so much for consolidating all the stuff and making just a really great, great podcast. Thank you so, so much.
4: Hey Jay, this is Carl in New Jersey and I just wanted to let you know that I discovered your podcast quite by accident at the beginning of October this year and I have to admit that it was quite a happy mistake. It really couldn't have come at a better time for me as I was falling into the trap of not caring that much about politics anymore and thinking that all politicians were the same. Uh, but after listening to your shows uh, leading up to the election season on the important issues of the day, I have to admit I'm fired up. I'm excited to go vote next Tuesday. And I've even got my wife, who was suffering a little bit of uh, election malaise herself, uh, coming with me. Um, it's really easy in this busy world to lose focus and forget why the progressive agenda is so important to all of us. Uh, but I have to thank you for the hard work you do putting together the podcast and to everyone else out there. Remember to vote next Tuesday. Uh, your candidate might not win, but at least you're giving them a fighting chance. Thanks a lot. Take it it easy and, uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. We're way over time, but this is a super show for the election, and I'm going to take a couple minutes to comment about the Daily Show Colbert rally that happened over the weekend. Uh, first, all the bad news. If you follow the show on Twitter or Facebook, you may have already seen this because I posted it there. Uh, if you're listening to the show on in, with the enhanced version, meaning you're like on an iPod or some device where you can see the pictures of the show as they go by, uh, you can see right now I posted the image in the show itself of the sign that I found the absolute most irritating that I think it, it, was, it was the worst of all that I saw. Many signs were kind of along these lines, um, you know. And I think that they play right into that narrative that uh, Jamie and Allison from Citizen Radio and I discussed in the last show talking about how uh, the environment that uh, Stuart and Colbert had created was one that kind of made fun of activism rather than promoting it as a sometimes good thing that can occasionally go overboard, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it in a smart way like they kind of set it up so that all activism is stupid it was was our contention basically and so the sign that i'm referring to and that i took a picture of says we're not going to protest and you know i didn't go up and talk to the person i didn't get their idea about it they probably just thought it was funny to have a protest sign that says we're not going to protest and it was being ironic but I think that's a really shitty thing to write on a sign and get that message out to anyone and more than anything, I think it's indicative of the mindset of the rally that like hey I'm I'll, like I'll, I'll go out to the National Mall for a free show, but I don't care enough about politics to try to do something about it And I think that was a little bit of the sentiment that was uh, that was put in place by the organizers and that's what We were so irritated about that made us have that discussion on the last episode. Um, You know what I would have loved to have seen, as I suggested before. You know, signs to counteract that idea, anything like apathy is not the answer, or something like sometimes outrage is warranted. You know, I would have loved to have seen signs like that, and and there there were. I mean, there were several that were like genuine signs with real messages. But for every sign that was along the lines of activism isn't cool, I would have loved to have seen a counteracting sign saying that, like, hey, people can go overboard sometimes, but generally, activism's a good idea. You know, like, that would be a funny sign, too, but at least it has a positive message. And then the final bit of bad commentary on it, uh, I'm going to leave to uh, Matthew Rothschild of The Progressive. He did a minute-long minute uh, commentary on it, and this is what he had to say about Jon Stewart's speech.
9: John Stewart's speech at Saturday's rally left me cold because it was stale, because it was sappy, because it was self-important and platitudinous, and because it minimized the hideousness of some of the tea partiers and it blurred the odiousness of Fox, because it was a mix of a high school graduation speech and a bad country western song with too few jokes tossed in, and especially... Because it was politically meaningless, and thereby a diversion at just the wrong time. When Jon Stewart said cable TV exaggerates the polarization and makes it seem like we can't work together to get things done, but the truth is we do, we work together to get things done every damn day, he was camouflaging the genuine political differences that actually do exist in this country and lapsing into Toby Keith territory. John Stewart acted as though there isn't a meaningful battle going on right now about which way our country should go or what kind of country we should be. His message wasn't to fight for political power, it was to play nice. After the brass knuckles treatment from the right and on the eve of the Democrats' little bighorn, that wasn't exactly the message we needed.
0: So that's all the negative stuff, and I know it sounds like a lot because, you know, progressives, we focus on the negative because we like to fix things. On the positive side, I think genuinely, like, it was mostly good. Mostly uh, people had a good time. They came away, you know, feeling like, you know, I I got out of the house and I was involved with something involving politics, you know, and that's more than most people do most of the time. So that's a good thing. And then I don't think that the rally was really aimed at hardcore progressives uh, and activists. It just wasn't. I mean, it, and they never pretended it was. Uh, and so this is how I think it could play out in a positive way. For the people sitting at home, who are, they They uh, receive their political information almost by osmosis. They just kind of, they hear this or that and barely pay attention, and from that develop their idea of what's happening in the world politically. They People could be sitting at home thinking, well, um, everyone says the Democrats are going to lose. I guess they've been screwing up. Everyone's talking about the Tea Partiers. You know, apparently that's a big movement going on. Um, you know, I guess people are angry in the country and that seems to be where the energy is. I guess I guess that's what people think. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, Glenn Beck had a big rally. Like, I don't know. I, I always thought he was kind of kooky, but turns out a lot of people like him. I don't know. It's, it seems like the, politics are really going to the right these days and then they don't really know any of the details and so for an event like this an enormous rally put together by people who are well known as liberals and to have hundreds of thousands of people show up and fill up the mall that can affect those people in the same way with the opposite message oh wait huh like i i thought i'd been hearing everything about how the tea party's taken over and they're the strongest political force in the country but I don't know, a a liberal put together a rally and seems like he got as many people if not more than Glenn Beck did. Maybe what I had heard before wasn't the entire story. So I certainly hope the things like that happen and the people like us who are, you know, think Code Pink is awesome and we should get out in the streets more often and call people war criminals, you know, we weren't the audience so we were bound to be disappointed. And finally, I just want to thank everyone who showed up at the Best of Love Listener meetup after the event. Uh, All of you guys are awesome. I I thoroughly enjoyed talking with all of you. I wish I had had more time to to dedicate to each individual, Uh, but I want to thank, uh, thanks to my genius idea to have a, a, a guest book. I want to thank Camille, Nick, Bill, Billy, Chris, Jordan, Andrew, Emery, Jennifer, Jamie, Michael, Chuck, the other Chris. And probably another Mike. Sydney, Yvonne, Alan, Tom, James, Curtis, Nick, Clara, Luke, Ed, Trisha, and Deanna, uh for coming and signing the book. If you came and didn't sign the book, then I missed your name. If uh Maybe I mispronounced your name, and that's why you think you didn't get called, but I tried to name everyone on the list here. So thanks uh, for coming out. I had an excellent time with all you guys, and I certainly hope to do it again. That's it for today. Stay tuned in on Facebook and Twitter. Details about the show on the show notes on the blog. Spread the word to everyone you know. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com.
10: Now black and white Cause you took apart a picture That wasn't right Bitch burning On a shining sheet The only maker That you wanna meet A dying man In a living room The shadow Bases the floor. Who'll take you out
2: i yeah.